Good morning. How are you today? Good. Where'd that come from? I'm good. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's been a good weekend. Welcome to Portico Church, Arlington. Uh, my name is Jason, uh, lead pastor. It's my privilege to open up the Word of God with you this morning. We're in Ecclesiastes. We'll be in 610 uh, all the way through 714. Uh, if you're new, maybe this is your first day or you're just checking us out. Uh, we've been in a, an Ecclesiastes series this summer, walking through it, and I've really loved it. Um, and as Jenny said, we want this to feel like home. Uh, you might be exploring Christianity. You actually may have no desire to, but for whatever reason, you're here. Uh, we want this to be a place you can get your questions answered. Uh, we do understand that God creates a family when he unites us to him through faith, and that family is active, and that's how we learn. That's how we walk through it together. So we want you to um, feel that. We want you to be able to engage that. And yeah, we, we're here because we believe that God has something for you. So let me just tell that to you. God, God has something to say to you today. Um, he's going to speak through his word. He's going to empower it by his spirit. Um, this is why we preach out of the Bible, out of scripture. So as we get going, uh, we're going to talk about sorrow today and what role it has in our life. Um, and a lot of times sorrow enters our life through an event um, and it brings extreme soberness. Uh, I will just tell you something. Uh, that happened to me that brought soberness. It, it's really in a context that maybe you wouldn't expect. It's through work. Um, I didn't start my life as a pastor. Many of you are probably, yeah, yeah, we can tell. Um, but I was in the airline industry, and uh, one, one morning, it was a beautiful spring morning, we were flying into San Francisco, and I was a rookie. I was green. I was the co-pilot. The first officer was not the captain. And we were coming in, and uh, we had a light fuel load because the weather was perfect. But if you've ever lived in San Francisco or in the East Bay, you know that they have this thing called the marine layer. And the fog can just crawl over the hill and up through and just drop onto the airport. And it did that. So everything was clear and sunny, except a finger of fog had walked over on top of the airport. You could still kind of see it, but the visibility was low enough that they couldn't do what's called a visual approach. So what happened is we were just put in a holding pattern. So you have all these planes coming in, rush hour, it's morning, and then slowing everybody down. We're in a holding pattern, and now there's like a 30-mile final, at least, stretching all the way past San Jose. So it's not a big deal. It happened, does happen a lot in San Francisco, but it wasn't changing. And we had a light fuel load. So I, I don't know. I'm, I can do math. So I'm, I'm running the numbers. I'm like, hey, Skipper, we're a little low here, right? He's like, no, 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 you're new. We do this all the time. It happens all the time. We'll be fine. So to make a long story longer, we got really, really low on fuel. And we had to tell the controller, hey, we need priority handling because we, we're, we're a little low. And we're on the side of the airport that was far away from the other airports. So we, we want to land. And we just, he said, hey, I, I get you. Everybody's in the same position. You're going to have to get in line. And you're, at, you're not you're 25 right now. So you're going to go all the way out past um, San Jose and maybe come back in. You've got at least an hour to get in. And I'm like, okay, thanks. And like, what are we going to do? It's like, we'll be fine. We're going to be fine. Trust me. We do this all the time. I'm like, my face is starting to get hot. My heart's pounding. I'm thinking, do I just key the mic and declare a low fuel emergency? Do, we, do I do that? Can I, is that in the manual? Like, I can't do that. Um, and I said, well, okay, that's great. Tell me how we're going to be fine. He said, just, and I could see the panic in his face a little bit. He, he just kind of locked up. We'll be fine. We, this always happens a lot. We're going to get there. And so I'm like silently praying and trying to figure out what to do. 
uh, and he could not give me an answer for how we're going to be fine. As the saying goes, hope is not a good strategy, especially that kind of hope. We're like, it's just, it's going to clear up. You'll see. I'm like, I don't see. That's the problem. So a finger of fog pulled back off of the approach end of the runway far enough for them to do a visual approach. They knew we were in bad shape. They could tell by the sound of our voice. We had the plane in front of us in sight, and so they cut, let us cut in line and land. Funny thing is we almost had to go around because we were so close to the plane in front of us, which would have been a disaster. So I don't tell you this so that you never fly again. And I hope the statute of limitations have all passed on this. I'm not going to tell you who I worked for at that point in time. But the point is, man, that, that was sobered me up, friend. I knew that in my industry there were things that you could do or ignore that had extreme consequences. Extreme consequences. It sobered me up. And, and not just for my job. It made me think about life. When you, when you experience sorrow or sadness or event like that, when that happens to you, it will bring you a life-changing sobriety. And here's why. You see the things as they are, not as you hope them to be. You can no longer hold on to hope. I have to deal with the data here. And events like that, at least for me, made me consider what, I, what is important here. Yes, what is important in, in my job, but what is important? It sobered me up. And Ecclesiastes is going there today. This is what we've learned so far, if you're just jumping in with us from Ecclesiastes. We've learned what life doesn't give you. Life doesn't give you the security that you want. It doesn't give you the control that you need in life. And it certainly doesn't give you the answers that you're longing for. In fact, when we think about it, here's what we know we can get from life. We get apparent randomness. Things just happen. We get injustice. We live through that. We get oppression. This happens. Think about what's happening in Charlottesville today. The year anniversary for disaster. Where a group of people are elevating one race above another. And it's happening here today. Nothing is better, friends. This is written 3,000 years ago. Nothing is better. Our plans get turnover. Family dies. Friends die. This happens. And yet our souls have this deep, 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 deep longing that doesn't go away. In fact, it ramps up with time. This is what Ecclesiastes has taught us. So, we have a decision to make today. The text is going to bring it to you. It's going to hand you this decision. How are you going to deal with sorrow? Are you going to escape from it? Are you going to commit your life to escaping from sorrow and from unhappiness? Or are you going to embrace it? Are you going to embrace sorrow? Are you going to say, no, nah, no, nah, we're going to be fine. We're always fine. It always works out. Why? Or are you going to embrace sorrow and take a hard look at some of the things that maybe you even haven't looked at. And you might say, wow, this is worse than I thought. Well, this is a rough day to come to church. This is good. No, no, this is good. God never shows you what's true in his book, in his word, without showing you hope, without giving you grace. So let's go there. It's Ecclesiastes 6.10. Let me just read this to you. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? 
For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, for the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider, key, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that would be after him. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Would you humble us today? Would you humble us today? The way that you humble mankind. That we might see you for who you are and ourselves for who we are and might understand in a new way your love for us. Lord, and we just lift up our sister church, our planting church, Portico Church in Charlottesville, as I know the stakes are high today. Let the church shine as the family of God, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we pray against the satanic violence and the underground movement that's going on right now. Lord, stop it. Guide us. Lord, open up your word that we might behold its treasure. In the name of Jesus, amen. So, this gives us a framework to understand. It's going to tell you that sorrow is going to sober you. Sober sorrow is better than just straight up passing happiness. There's a a characteristic to sorrow and to sadness that shakes you up. That gives you a lens to see life like no other thing can. And we're going to take a tour today. We're going to take a tour. There's two houses that we're going to tour. In fact, on Sundays, right, a lot of times homes in your neighborhood will have an open house. And whether you're going to buy one or not, you might just go check it out because you're going to see your neighbor's furniture. We're going to do that today. We're going to check the furniture out. There's two houses here that we see, the house of mirth and the house of mourning, the house of unending happiness or feasting and the house of death, the house of mourning. So we're going to walk through that. But before we get there, think of the framework that Solomon has given us before he drops this poetry. Um, There's a shift. Beginning of the book starts, what is the meaning of life? What, What do we do? How does work work? 
now there's starting to be a little bit of a darker shift. And it's less about finding meaning and more about living in this tension that we feel that we just talked about. Um, I want control and don't have it. I want to know the answers, but I don't understand. And we feel the lack of our position and the lack of our power. So the first thing we need to understand, the framework here, like on top and below this poetry, this proverbial wisdom that he gives us, is your life is limited. If you don't understand that life has limits, none of this is going to make sense. We understand in how, what, like what way are we limited as a human being. Um, so the first is your position. You are human. You are man. You are woman. Uh, verse 10 says, what has, whatever has come has already been named and it is known what man is. So what is man? Um, we're probably meant to tie back to Genesis, especially Genesis 1 and 2, uh, with the words that he uses. Everything has been named. We see that naming, especially in this context, takes on authority. So we see God's sovereignty in that. And even more than that, it is also know what man is. There's a play on words here. The word for man in Hebrew is Adam, and the word for dirt is Adama. So there's a, there's a play on words between Adam and dirt. So it's almost like saying his name is Dusty, right? We get that. You come from the dirt, and you're going back to the dirt. That is so good to remember. You're a dirt bag, right? Not that you have no value. You're like, well, that doesn't make me feel very good about myself. Well, then go to Genesis 1, 26 and 7. For we have made man in our image, male and female. We have made them. So you are an image bearer of the living God. That's why men, women, black, white, doesn't matter who you are, have equal dignity, value, and position before God as far as humanity is concerned. So we're, we're, we're this etymological link between Adam between, and the dirt. We need to see that because um, that's a big idea here in, in Ecclesiastes. This is where you came from. That's where you're going to go, no matter who you are or what you do. So we see position. And secondly, we see power. God is sovereign. He is in control over all of life. And I hope in the back of your head, if you're honest with yourself, you say, that's great. I have a lot of questions about that. That's where this wants you to go. It's not going to answer your questions. A lot of times scripture has no desire to answer the question that you want answered the most, but gives you an answer to the most important question. It goes on to say that he's not able to dispute with the one who's stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. Um, What is the advantage to man? There's this idea that like... Almost like in college or in school when you get a bad grade and you know that you didn't deserve it. It used to happen to me all the time. Uh, you go talk to the professor, and the more you talk, the worse it gets. Now you're never going to get a good grade. You, you petition, and it gets worse and worse. So what is good in life in light of this tension? This is where the text goes. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning then into the house of feasting or mirth. Do you believe that? I don't know. I don't know. So let's take a tour. Is sober sorrow better than passing joy? Is it? Two houses. Let's take a walk. Now, the house of mirth or the house of feasting, it's about escaping sorrow. And you need to think in context, a wedding. This is, where, this is where you would go into the house of feasting or mirth. And the house of mourning, it's a wake. It's where you go to remember the dead. Two physical places, people there. Um, there's a wedding and there's a wake. Do you escape sorrow or do you embrace it? So let's start the tour. Um, 
sorrow, right? Soberness, the soberness that sorrow brings is better than passing happiness. First house, in the house of mirth, here's what you find. We're going to take a tour. In the house of mirth, you will find spiritual inebriation. And it's, it's either really good or really bad, depending on what you want. So what does inebriation do to you? When you are inebriated or intoxicated, it heightens or shuts down emotions. So when you're in the house of mirth, your emotions are not actually in sync with how things are actually happening in and around your life. You cannot see and understand and navigate the road that God has laid before you. It doesn't make sense. I keep finding myself in the ditch. It doesn't work. So the first thing that we find in the house of mirth is spiritual inebriation. And one of the ways that uh, the text shows that, it shows your emotional response to life, which is anger, chronic irritation. Where does that come from? Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. There's no settled trust in God's sovereignty in his work. In fact, maybe he should fear me. Because when I get to that day, that judgment day, I have some questions for him. This is how we think. Right? We're not thinking as those who have come from the dust and that go there and that we exist by God's grace alone and that our existence itself is meant to love God, enjoy Him, to glorify Him, and to, to be satisfied in Him forever. We don't think that way. So there's this anger and this chronic irritation. And here's what it comes from. Fear of loss. That's always what anger is. Have you ever tried to take a bone away from a dog you didn't know? I bet you've got the scars to prove it. You're not stupid. So this is what happens. We feel like we're backed into a corner. We feel threatened. Anger pops out. Sometimes we don't even know why. Sometimes there's a deeper story. But behind that anger and chronic irritation, here's what's happening. I do not trust God's work. I do not trust that he sees my life. Or if if he sees my life, I don't trust that he understands my life. He's not getting it right in my life. This is where anger pops from, right? He doesn't see me. He doesn't care. He isn't good, maybe. So there's this anger and this chronic irritation that just bubbles and bubbles and bubbles. Here's the wrong assumption that comes out in our text. We understand our life is about prosperity, about our gain, about our gain, making life work instead of a gift. And we just boil and we boil. I want peace, and I want prosperity, and I want it now, and I want it on my terms. And if I don't get it, there's hell to pay. We think like that, friend. We think like that. So that you find spiritual inebriation in the house of mercy. Secondly, you find the affirmation of fools. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For it's the crackling of thorns under a pot, so it's the laughter of, the, of fools. So this is vanity. Um, Do you know what brush and thorns do under a pot? Nothing. Nothing. You know how much heat energy it takes to to heat a large pot of water? A lot. 
when you throw some brush or some thorns under there, what happens is it flames up quick and it pops and it crackles, but nothing happens. The pot actually doesn't raise in temperature. So we're meant to understand that. Um, this is the affirmation of fools. Now, affirmation is powerful. You need it. You crave it. You need to have it. And you're going to get it one way or another. It's important. We need affirmation. God built us for that. Um, but the question is, whose affirmation do you crave? I'll tell you who. When they give you affirmation, it feels like heaven. Like nothing can bring you down. Okay? It feels like heaven. Um, if that is not coming from somebody who is wise, it's going to destroy you. If, that, if you're seeking affirmation from the voice of fools, and this is what Solomon is telling us, um, you're in the house of mirth, right? We go together as groups of people. We want to feel as though we are affirmed. Let this hit home. If you're following Jesus, you will, at some point in your life, if you haven't already, you're going to be an enemy of the people, enemy of some people. If you follow Jesus, you will be called that. Um, he was. There's no way to follow Jesus. There's no way to take serious his work in your life. There's no way to understand his words and to walk in faith and not be rejected. At some point, James 4, 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We live in this tension because I'm with the affirmation of culture and people and friends. And sometimes that puts me at odds. But know this, when you have the affirmation and the pleasure of God, you can stand any, anything. You can stand any word against you. You can stand insult, displeasure of all measure when you have God's affirmation and pleasure. So you meant for it, but you're meant to find it in him alone. All right, house of mirth. This is the big one. You're going to love this. You know what you find in the house of mirth? Nostalgia. We reminisce. Now, Nostalgia in and of itself isn't bad. But growing out of a fallen nature, one that is absolutely blind to the goodness of God and finds it unacceptable that I myself will be judged, that's sin, right? Here's what nostalgia says. Well, here's actually what the scripture says. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. See, when the road in front of you looks unfamiliar or treacherous, or you keep ending up in the ditch, what's normal? Enough of this noise. You turn. I'm out. I'm going back where it was good. Um, over the past six years here at Portico Church, this has happened so many times to me. Um, somebody will, will come up, and they will roll for whatever reason, right? And they'll, I'll hear from them later, and they're like, dude, you know, like, ah. I, I moved back to, like, my college town, and all my friends were not as fun as I thought they were. And the place was kind of dingy. I thought it was awesome. Um, it, why? What did I do wrong? Ha this happens all... I just heard it this week from somebody. Everybody's different now. Life was awesome back there and back then, but now it's not. Why can't I find that? This is how nostalgia works. It takes... A good experience, and it's like a magnifying glass, and it magnifies the emotion of that experience, so much so that you pursue it 
and you seek it and you attach that emotion to the person, to the place, to the season of your life. And you believe that's where I'm going to find my peace, my prosperity. That's my house of mirth. That's my house of happiness. I need to get back in there, get back on that. We do this with vacations, right? You go back every year and every year it's a little less fun, that place. Then I find a new place. Go back and hang out with my friends. Hey, you're not as cool as I thought you were. What's wrong with you? Um, You're chasing the experience that produced this intense emotion of happiness. You're doing it. I do it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says, author, in his book, Weight of Glory. He says, the books of the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. For it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. Hear this. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found. They are an echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a far country we have not visited. When you feel nostalgia, you see, a, you see or smell or sense a bit of perfection. It's as if heaven breaks in a little bit. And we know that in Ecclesiastes 3.11, uh, we were taught that, that God has put eternity into our heart. We find it uh, unacceptable just to live. We need to find a reason to live and find the transcendent. And we have this moment of perfection, especially when we look backwards. And so this pulls us back to find it. And it's never quite the way it was. What God has meant for this to do is to pull it forward. When something feels like home, it should pull us up to the Heavenly Father. When something feels beauty, it should pull us to God who's the giver of beauty. And he himself is beauty, right? It should bring us to home and to belonging and lead us forward, not backwards, into heaven. Because I'll tell you this, obsession with your past always controls your future. This is nostalgia. This is the house of mirth. Um, one of my spiritual fathers, Pastor Sadakhar in Bethel Gospel Church in India, great man, been in ministry for 30 years. Um, he always tells me his story of how he came to Christ. He was a young 20-something in India, and honestly, his life sounds a lot familiar, it's familiar to ours, right? He's like just doing his stuff, getting education to figure out life, and he was basically staying in the house of mirth by numbing himself with alcohol. And then one day he was on the street getting ready to cross and this kid next to him jumped out and got hit by a bus, instantly killed. And it's like he just stopped. Everything stopped for him. It's like, what just happened? And he saw the frailty of his life and it made him think, what, where is he now? And God used that to bring him to faith. It shook him out of his spiritual inebriation like nothing else. Sorrow and pain will do that. Sober sorrow is better than passing joy. So, when you want to live there, house of mirth, it feels good, man. You've seen the furniture. You've seen what it does. It promises you everything, but gives you emptiness. All right, the second house, the house of mourning. What are you going to find there? The first thing, stick with me, spiritual sobriety. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, 
but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Why? Why is it better? Sobriety. You're actually seeing what's there. When I was young, I was focused on what things could be. When I became an adult, I was focused on what things should be. When you get older, you start focusing on things that will never be. You just know it. They're never going to be. See, it's not sorrow for the sake of sorrow or sadness for the sake of sadness. It's more like brokenness. It's more like brokenness. You understand you're helpless to overcome your own sin. And if you've ever been faced with it, you know this. You understand you're really helpless to change the hearts of people that hate other people. In fact, the more I get engaged with it, it makes me want to hate people. It sucks you in. It makes you see things as they are. And that can push despair, but don't back off from it. Spiritual sobriety. This is the first stop on the tour. This is why nobody wants to live here. It's a bad neighborhood. You walk in, you're like, hmm, people haven't done anything in this place for years. Let's just move on. Who wants to be sad? There's something wrong with you. And I mean that, if you want to be sad. Okay, so there's spiritual sobriety in the house of mourning. Secondly, there's the rebuke of the wise. It gets more fun. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Why do you need a rebuke? And what is a rebuke? So it's not the affirmation of fools that you're hearing affirming you that, no, you are right. The way you feel is what you should do. You're getting the rebuke of the wise. The wise in this case would be those who are walking in a love-trust relationship with God the Father in our context through Christ. Well, I'll tell you why. Because let me tell you the nature of sin. Sin does two things. It will bind you. So it locks you in, and there's no way out of it in your own, and it also blinds you. You can't see what you can't see. So let me ask you a question. Um, do you know what your blind spots are? Do you? Anybody? It's a trick question. Get it? Can you see your blind spots? No, you can't, or else it wouldn't be blind spots. You know areas where you're weak? You know that? I had a conversation with somebody that I love and trust this week, and we were talking about something. You know what this person told me? He said, I'm terrified that there's things in my life I'm blind about and nobody will say, nobody will say, dude, what are you doing? The older I get, the more I think that person is right. So sin will bind you, it will blind you. And love cares more about the response, I mean the outcome of a rebuke than the response. In other words, if I truly love you and I see you running off the cliff, and I'm just like, well, you know, if that's what makes you happy, I don't love you at all. I love not being, I love my life. I love being in the house of mirth. Um, So rebuke is like you're coming at somebody, not mean, not rude, but you're being honest. Um, We live in a culture where love and affirmation um, go together. They don't. Get it out of your mind. Love and affirmation do not live in the same world. I promise you this. Here's what, let me give you an example. Um, when one of my little crumb crunchers was growing up, uh, I won't tell you who he is, but it's the boy, and he was around three years old, four years old. You just, he wouldn't listen to anything you said at that age. I think that's normal. Boom, out in the street. Didn't get hit. Could have died. I clouded up, and I rained on that kid. I rebuked him. 
right? It was, it was serious. I did not affirm what he did. I guarantee you. But I loved him with all my heart. Love and affirmation do not live in the same world. We want him to. So if I do not affirm you, if I do not affirm something of you, it doesn't mean I hate you. We, the church cannot buy that. We love one another, right? Um, we love one another. So the rebuke of the wise, and here's the key. In the house of mourning, you have a teacher. You know what a teacher is? Death. You're discipled by death. You need to sit down with the reaper and have a cup of tea. You do. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Why? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. You know why it's impossible for you to hold on to happiness and joy? Because you have no gratitude. You've imagined that you, you, you've earned more than what you have. Life is not a gift. It's a channel for me to find prosperity. Solomon said, it doesn't matter what you find. You're going in the dirt. Just like the squirrel, just like your neighbor, just like those that came before you. So death invites you to listen so that it will change how you live today. Your life is a gift. Your life is not about you. This universe is not about humanity. We're in the created order. We're not the kings and queens, really. There's things that are higher than us. There's created beings, angels. and We're in it. We're not an animal. We're not an angel. We're somewhere in the middle. I'm happy to be here. Be happy to be here. And let life be a gift. How do we do that? Verse 13. Consider the work of God. Isn't that great? It's like the anti-nostalgia. Consider the work of God. There's some harsh sovereignty in there. What he has made crooked, you cannot make straight. Okay. Position yourself. Consider the work of God in your life. Consider the work of God where Jesus lives, suffers, dies, resurrects, ascends, intercedes for you today. Consider the work of God in your life, what he has done, and don't run from the rebuke. Ask yourself this. Have you, this is what it, discern this. Have you built your life on something that you can lose? You're holding on to the house of mirth. And you're running from the house of mourning. Um, The time in my life when I had the most sober sorrow I've ever had. I I know that you've you've heard some of this. um, But we were in southern Virginia. It was in 98, I'll tell you. And we were in a small church. um, And (sighs) I'm not going to tell the whole story, but... We had three little kids. We'd lost our home, foreclosed on, lost a job. There was serious physical issues, yada, yada, on and on and on, right? Just fill that out. And we were in a community group in this church who was led by a 78-year-old widow. And we were in her community group. And you just wanted to be around her. And she knew we were hurting, and she knew we were in pain. And one day, we were there, and she's just like, man, you guys are in it, aren't you? You've you got it bad. I'm like, Miss Thompson, you don't have any idea. And she said, Jason, 
do you know how silver is refined? I said, no, Mrs. Thompson. She got out this devotional and he, she read it to me. She said, listen, the master crafter takes the silver and adds heat to it and it starts to melt. And then the master crafter adds more heat. You know what happens? The dross and the impurities float to the top and they start to distort the surface of the metal. It's like we're getting there. And then he adds more heat and those impurities start to burn away off the top of the silver. She said, do you know, Jason, how the master crafter knows when he's finished? I said, nope. When he can see his reflection in the silver perfectly. Hear that? The impurities are burned away. He's added enough heat. See, this is what God is doing in your life, boy. Faith for you is going to be not to run from the pain, not to run from the loss, to learn to trust God in a way you've never had to, and to rest on his power in a way you've never even imagined. Nobody else in the world could have told me that at that moment, but Miss Betty Thompson. That was a rebuke. Basically, he said, toughen up. It gets worse. But there's nothing better than your Lord who will not let you go. Make your decision. Where are you going to live? Sober sorrow is better than passing joy because you learn this. You learn this and nothing else can teach you. Um, have you spent your life escaping sorrow? And some of you have a lot to escape from. Have you spent your life running from unhappiness and pain? That's unfortunate because in the house of mourning is where you find Jesus. That's where he's at. And here's what he's done. He's taken the house of mourning. He's taken the wake, if you will, and he's flipped it into a wedding. No one else could do that. That's what we all thought was going to happen in the house of mirth. But it ends up being a prison. Jesus does this. He enters into the funeral, entering into the house of mourning. He is the wake. And then he turns that into a funeral. So do not build your identity in your own suffering and sorrow. Don't. It's about you. And do not ignore your suffering and sorrow and the pain that you're in. Don't ignore it. It has a lesson for you. But do this. Allow Jesus to meet you there. Find your identity in his living, his suffering, his resurrection because Jesus walked into the house of mourning and he just ransacked it. Ransacked it. Ransacked it. He walked into death and ransacked it. And as a friend told me today, quoting somebody that had stage four cancer who's about to die. Here's what I'm encouraged about. Jesus knows my name. And if you're trusting in him, he knows your name. You cannot lose that, friend. You cannot lose that. So how to respond to this? Um, put your eyes, friends, on what seems hopeless. Quit looking away from it whether it's in your own life or in the life of somebody else, and start putting your trust on God's work. Because you know the whole house of mirth, you know what the, you know what the real mantra is? I've got this. I can do this. And you can't. You can't. There's so much joy we forfeit because we run from sorrow. We refuse to trust 
in the power of the resurrection for our circumstances, for our life, for our friend, and, and accept that there's a lot of things we won't be able to answer, but God is there with us. Let me give you a picture of how this wake turns into a wedding. Listen to this. This is where your nostalgia is meant to draw you. Listen. Revelations 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that is the church, that is you if you have faith in Christ, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's faith. And the angel said to me, write this. This is written for you today. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What's it going to take? Let this be the day. Walk out of it. Hold on to God. Let him have your sin. Let him have your life. Let him have all of it. He's earned it. He deserves it. There's nothing better. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for discipling us, for teaching us, for being patient with us, Lord, for loving us. I pray for this church. I pray for myself and for my family and friends. Things are far worse than we've ever imagined. And if we will trust you, things are far more glorious than we've ever imagined. Give us the sobriety and the courage to trust you in this, Lord. If you have destroyed the house of mourning and made it a wedding feast, we want to go with you. In the name of Jesus.